Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. True North True Crime is now available on Patreon. You can now listen to exclusive bonus episodes, early release episodes, and ad-free episodes by signing up at patreon.com slash tntcpod. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. True, the great gales that sweep the Atlantic seaboard are monsters in madness compared with the storms of our inland sea. The lightkeeper on the sea coasts, housed in his granite home, may well shudder as the worried waters roll mountains high and send ships to their port or to their doom. But the duties of our inland lightkeepers are on more favored lines. For... The duties of these men are not heavy except the duty of lighting the lantern at sundown and extinguishing it at sunrise, and that all the property be kept in good order and condition. But for one lightkeeper, in 1815, his job would turn deadly. Tonight, we present The Haunted Lighthouse, and you are listening to True North True Crime. Welcome to a special October episode of True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. We need to give everyone a quick reminder that we are now on Patreon. So if you're looking for more True North True Crime, go to patreon.com slash tntcpod and check out which subscription package works best for you. If you are new to True North True Crime, we are a two-person team building these episodes from start to finish with the goal of raising awareness for missing people and victims of violent crime in Canada We prioritize cases that come to us from family members or close contacts of cases. So if you need some help getting the word out about a case that affects you, please reach out at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode. 
So every year in October, we like to take a small break from our regular episodes in order to explore more historical or Halloween-type stories. And tonight we are talking about a murder that took place on the grounds of the Gibraltar Lighthouse. This lighthouse is now alleged to be haunted by its former lighthouse keeper, John Paul Rademuller. He was also known as Radenmuller and Radmuller, and I've also seen him referenced as Mueller. For the sake of this episode, we'll probably just call him John Paul. So verifying most of the details of this story is almost impossible. The details of this crime have been lost to time. So we have used a little bit of creativity to build this episode. However, there have been a few Toronto-based journalists who have written about this story. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles, including an article by Spacing.ca reporter Adam Bunch. Uh, We believe that this is essential reading to understanding the story. For historical accuracy, we use the 1908 book written by John Ross Robertson titled Landmarks of Toronto. So this episode is a little fact and a little fiction. Please enjoy. As an additional content warning, this episode contains the graphic depiction of an axe murder. In 1804, on the northern shore of Lake Ontario was a new European settlement known as York. With a population of just hundreds, the new township was looking forwards to the future as a hub city for a territory known at the time as Upper Canada. Previous to the European colonization, the area was the home of the Iroquois and known as Tiaagon. In the modern day, you might know this area as Toronto. In 1804, the area was strategic for shipping, for war, and for agriculture. Its roots in European-Canadian history are large. Men with names like Simcoe, Brock, and Markham strutted along the narrow dirt roads with lofty goals. One of those goals was a lighthouse. It was to be the tallest structure in all of the land. The key use of the lighthouse was to guide ships into the harbor, but there were many hazards under the water. In this area of Lake Ontario, there are rolling and shifting sandbars. Fierce winter storms have moved the sand so much over the years that entirely new islands have been formed or lost as time goes by. The primary purpose of the lighthouse was to guide ships away from these shallow shoals and sandbars in order to create a safe passage into and out of the harbor. John Graves Simcoe declared the building would be named Gibraltar Point Lighthouse in honor of the entry point to the Mediterranean Sea. To this day, it is still unclear what the significance of this name was for Simcoe. The Gibraltar Point Lighthouse was approved in 1803 along with two other lighthouses, but building it didn't start until 1808. When completed, originally it stood 52 feet or 16 meters high. The structure had two meter thick walls built with stone from near Queenston and the base of the lighthouse was made from stone near Kingston. A harbor fee charged to all the boats entering the harbor was used to fund the construction and upkeep of the lighthouse. The first time the lantern was lit was on September 30, 1808. Its light shone across Lake Ontario from dusk until dawn using 200 gallons of sperm whale oil a day. The lighthouse structure was accompanied by a wooden cottage to be used as a home for the lighthouse keeper. This cottage was not a luxury accommodation, 
It stood two stories tall, with two rooms on the main floor and a sleeping area in the second floor attic. But who would be the lighthouse keeper? Well, that story is a little longer. The story of how the first lighthouse keeper made his way to Canada is by no means a straight line. John Paul Rattelmuller was born in the town of Ansbach, Bavaria, in the late 1700s. As a teenager, he was sent to England to work as a royal servant to the Mad King George III and his brother, Prince William. After 16 years as a royal servant, John Paul moved back to his hometown to become a farmer. During this time, the French Revolution broke out and John Paul's farm was in the middle of the fighting. He was forced to flee to England yet again. This time, as a refugee of war, he found himself back as a servant of the royal court, working as a porter but this time it was for the younger Prince Edward. It was through Prince Edward that John Paul first heard about Canada. Prince Edward was in love with the country and spoke about it with admiration. Eventually, Prince Edward made his way back to Nova Scotia by boat, bringing with him his new porter, John Paul. When Prince Edward became ill and was forced to go back to England, John Paul asked to remain in Canada and took a job as a steward for the Governor General of Nova Scotia. Perhaps inspired by the freedoms of being in what was called the New World, John Paul again dreamt of farming. The word going around was that Upper Canada, or Ontario, was filled with fertile fields for growing crops. His boss was reticent to let him go, but John Paul sent his belongings by boat up the St. Lawrence River and through Lake Ontario, and he eventually followed suit. However, his boss, the Governor General, refused to give him letters of introduction. These types of letters were integral at this time for people in order for them to obtain work and property. John Paul arrived in York on New Year's Day, 1804. He knew no one. He had no prospects, but he was determined. Before long, he had founded a school to teach English to German settlers. Eventually, he would become the official government translator at the time. In 1808, the lighthouse was completed, and the person who was tapped to be the first lightkeeper was John Paul Rattlemuller. John Paul's responsibility as Toronto's first lightkeeper was to turn on and off the lamp each night and at morning. Additionally, he would be responsible for alerting the city each time a large ship entered the harbor. He flew a Union Jack for every vessel arriving from Kingston and the British Red Ensign for ships sailing north from Niagara. He settled into the small wooden cottage and set about his new life. Within the first year, he sent for his fiancée, Magdalena. Two years later, the two married in Toronto's first-ever church. They would add to their family with the birth of their daughter, Arabella. Life for the Rattlemullers was quiet and peaceful. John Paul would light the lamp at dusk and extinguish it at dawn. His days were spent with general upkeep of the property. But he noticed a void in the new world. The beer was terrible. So John Paul wanted to remedy the beer problem in Upper Canada. He began making his own beer that he would sell to locals. This, of course, made him a popular person in the town of York. But the peace and quiet would not remain. As we know, the world can be filled with war and hate, and in 1812, war broke out. There was a new neighboring country to the south called America, and America was looking to expand. Canada was still very much under British rule, and the newly formed United States had issues with their old friends, England. The War of 1812 pitted the young United States in a war against Great Britain, from whom the American colonies had won their independence in 1783. 
The conflict was a byproduct of the broader conflict between Great Britain and France over who would dominate Europe and the wider world. While England's army was engaging in Europe with the French, the U.S. Army took advantage of the situation and invaded Canada. For John Paul Rattelmuller, this would put his job on the front lines of the war. It would be his job to keep British ships safe. As to lose even one ship could change the course of the war. This would be John Paul's lot in life for the next three years. As the British army began to position itself to fight off the Americans, they set up a military base near the lighthouse. This outpost was known as Blockhouse Bay, and it was staffed with soldiers from the nearby Fort York. John Paul was popular amongst the soldiers for both his demeanor, which was always kind, but also for his homemade beer. In fact, he made a good amount of money with his little side business. On Christmas Eve 1814, a peace treaty was signed between the two countries in Belgium. But sadly, this news would not travel across the Atlantic in time to save John Paul. On the evening of January 1st, 1815, something went terribly wrong. Perhaps it was the hangover from New Year's Eve, or perhaps a need to continue the celebrations. But in the late night hours of January 1st, John Paul was visited by some soldiers. Before midnight on a cold, dark, and windy winter's night, two soldiers made their way by foot from Blockhouse Bay to Gibraltar Point Lighthouse. They walked a mile along an icy shoreline until they arrived at John Paul's cabin, waking up his wife and child. The two men already appeared in their cups and requested more beer from John Paul. This was not uncommon, so John Paul obliged. The two soldiers named John Henry and John Bloman sat drinking with John Paul late into the night and early into the wee hours of the morning while John Paul's wife and child slept in the attic. John Bloman enlisted in the army for three years on March 9, 1812. He served in the war's bitter Niagara campaign and may have fought at the Battle of Fort George in May of 1813. John Henry, by contrast, was a new recruit who likely never saw action. He joined on the 6th of July, 1814, in Montreal for three years of service. He was born in Ireland and just 18 years old when he enlisted. He had blue eyes, brown hair, a fair complexion, and stood five foot four in height. From the best of accounts, the men drank, laughed, and joked. All was well, until it wasn't. John Paul felt the energy change. Henry and Bloman were getting quite drunk. John Paul suggested they leave. They did not. John Paul then cut them off, stating that he would serve them no more beer that night. Henry and Bloman became belligerent. They accused John Paul of overcharging them for weak beer. One rumor states that the beer began to freeze in their mugs, leading the soldiers to believe there was no alcohol content. John Paul demanded again that the men leave. They were very drunk. Perhaps it was better to deal with this in the morning. John Paul stood up from his chair and attempted to usher the men towards the door. Henry pulled off his own belt and wrapped it around his fist. Bloman picked up a large rock from beside the fireplace. 
John Paul tried to reason with them, but it was too late. They began to brutally beat John Paul as his wife and child slept in the attic above. Fearing for his life, John Paul ran out the front door of the cottage and made his way to the safety of the lighthouse. But the men pursued. John Paul entered the lighthouse and closed the door behind him. Henry and Bloman worked to kick the door down, filled with rage and alcohol. The wooden door was no match for their strength and collapsed under their anger. John Paul ran up the staircase inside of the lighthouse as Henry and Bloman gave chase. As the torch of the lighthouse burned brightly into the first evening of the new year, John Paul stood against its railings five stories above the ground. John Paul looked out onto Lake Ontario, a body of water he had made safe for the last seven years. This would be the last time he would look out from this place. His heart racing, his lungs trying to fill with air, he watched as Henry and Bloman came up the stairs. The two men advanced on John Paul and continued the beating. Eventually, they picked him up and sent him over the rails. John Paul fell 16 meters to the ground below him. He would not survive the fall. At the age of 52, John Paul Rattlemuller, Toronto's first lighthouse keeper, was murdered on that cold night in 1815. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we will conclude the story of the haunted Gibraltar Lighthouse. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And we are back. Before the break, we outlined the life and times of John Paul Rattlemuller and the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse. In the early morning hours of January 2nd, 1815, John Paul was beaten and then thrown to his death by two drunk soldiers. As John Paul lay dying on the ground below the lighthouse, Henry and Bloman knew that they were in trouble. From the top of the lighthouse, they stared down at John Paul. The penalty for murder in those times was death by hanging. So they made their way down the stairs and found John Paul on the ground. Thinking that if there was no body, there would be no charge, the two men set about cutting John Paul into pieces with an axe. First, they cut off his limbs and head. Then, they cut smaller pieces. Using a shovel, they dug many shallow graves and buried John Paul's remains along the shoreline in front of the lighthouse. As daylight was breaking across the lake, the two men walked away from the lighthouse. They did not return to their base in Blockhouse Bay, 
instead choosing to run. The next day, John Paul was reported missing by his wife Magdalena. People had witnessed Bloman and Henry walking towards John Paul's cabin that night, but they were nowhere to be found, and neither was John Paul. A story ran in the local newspapers about John Paul's disappearance and the rumors surrounding that night. The men's absence was too much of a coincidence. The military set about trying to find them, and they did. The two men were apprehended and would stand trial. The following was reported in the January 14, 1815 edition of the York Gazette. Died on the evening of the 2nd of January, J.P. Rattlemuller, keeper of the lighthouse on Gibraltar Point. From circumstances, there is moral proof of his having been murdered. If the horrid crime admits of aggravation, when the inoffensive and benevolent character of the unfortunate sufferer are considered, his murder will be pronounced most barbarous and inhumane. The parties lost with him are the proposed perpetrators and are in prison. It took more than two months for the case to come to trial. When it did, there was little evidence. No one had ever found John Paul's body. In the prisoner dock on March 31st, both Bloman and Henry pled not guilty. The prosecution called seven witnesses, including David Thompson, a mason who helped rebuild Fort York. The coroner, Thomas Cooper, also testified at least four of the other Crown witnesses were privates of the Glengarry Light Infantry, presumably asked to give evidence on the actions or whereabouts of Bloman and Henry on January 2nd. At the end of the trial on April 15th, the York Gazette reported no conviction of the supposed murderers of the late J.P. Rademuller. No one would ever be convicted in the murder of John Paul. Although Bloman and Henry escaped the death penalty, neither remained in the army for long. At the end of his enlistment, Bloman was discharged on the 28th of April, 1815, while Henry deserted from the army on 30th of June. Like many former soldiers, Bloman received 100 acres in Prince Edward County as a reward for his service. Henry's whereabouts is unknown. In 1816, John Paul Rattlemuller's widow and brother-in-law, Michael Burkholder, secured title for 200 acres in Reach Township in trust for Arabella. This was a posthumous fulfillment of her father's 1805 land petition, which he had requested while he worked in the lighthouse. Just four or five years old at the time of her father's murder, Arabella grew up, married, and had seven children of her own before her own death in 1844 at the age of 34. From 1813 onwards, many generations of the Dernan family took over as the lighthouse keepers at Gibraltar Point. But as the legend goes, on a cold morning in 1893, lighthouse keeper George Dernan walked around the property of the lighthouse in search of Rattlemuller's remains. He came across a jawbone and what looked like a piece of a wooden coffin. He later gave the jawbone a proper burial somewhere in the apple orchard. Could this jawbone be the remains of John Paul? In the early 1980s, a parks board employee found something as well. The following account was reported in the Torontoist.com. John Padovani, a park employee, had a recent encounter with the deceased keeper's bones. 
in the early 1980s, either in 1981 or 1982, in the spring, the runners on the stairs needed to be rebuilt. I was working on that with another handyman, Lionel, says Potavani. I looked around and saw that at the base was an opening to a long cylindrical shaft. I went down and Lionel and I rummaged around. We found a candlestick holder and then I found the leg bone that goes from the knee to the hip. I phoned the superintendent at the time, Jim. He told me to leave everything there. They'd send the cops tomorrow. The next day at seven in the morning, Jim, two cops and I went back down the shaft. I had left everything there, but the room was empty. Padovani says that someone must have played a trick on them, but admits that he thinks the lighthouse could actually be haunted. Maybe J.P. Radenmuller played a great prank on all of us, he says. Over the years since John Paul's murder, there have been hundreds of reports of paranormal activity in and around the lighthouse. At times outside of the navigation season when the lighthouse should be dark, there have been reports of the light suddenly shining bright in the dark sky sometimes for just a moment, then suddenly stopping. Even decades after the lighthouse was decommissioned, people have reported the light shining brightly across the lake. People have also reported seeing shadowy figures running across the sandbanks in the middle of the night, as if replicating the chase between John Paul and his murderers as he ran to the safety of the lighthouse. When the wind picks up and races across Lake Ontario, It can hit the lighthouse in such a way that screams can be heard coming from the light cage atop the tower. Even the pigeons in the area coo in a haunting fashion. One group on a tour of the lighthouse saw blood soaked across the 13th step, while another saw an apparition of John Paul himself jump from a closet. While some of these instances can be explained as just the wind or it was the moonlight's reflection, It still begs the question, does the ghost of John Paul Radenmuller haunt the grounds of the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse? Like all mysteries, the story of the murder of John Paul and his subsequent haunting of the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse has been debunked over time. The lack of documentation lost to history has made light work of debunking this local myth. A group of paranormal enthusiasts did test the grounds of the lighthouse using EMF and EVP testing. The conclusion of their study was that there was no haunting at the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse. Another factor is the Dernan family. They watched over the lighthouse for 150 years and they themselves have never reported any ghost sightings or apparitions. In a CBC film from April 3rd, 1958, the Dernans stated the following, Our family has been connected with this lighthouse for 150 years. We know about the lighthouse keeper being murdered, but as far as being haunted, we don't know anything about that. As late as 1958, the Dernan family maintains that Radenmuller was murdered, but they have never seen his ghost. Also from the CBC archives, the April 3, 1958 broadcast included the personal opinion of the last lighthouse keeper of Gibraltar Point, Mrs. D.D. D. Dodds. She stated, I have never met the ghost, but I can understand how the legend persists. The cooing of the pigeons is very eerie on a dark night, and the wind howling through the lighthouse gives you shivers. When the moon is full, 
It's reflected back from the top of the lighthouse. This spring, when I was riding my bike, I was startled to see the light. When the navigation season was closed, it was just for a few seconds and then I realized that the moon was full and it was reflecting against the glass of the light. The Gibraltar Point Lighthouse was deactivated in 1956. The shores of Lake Ontario have receded over the years, leaving the lighthouse about 100 meters back from the water. Its stone walls had been chipped and beaten. The structure is hidden by dense greenery and trees almost as tall as the lighthouse itself. But there was one final debate about the existence of ghosts that played out between the Ontario Archaeological Society and the Metro Toronto Parks Committee, and that was over a plaque. The following was reported by Adam Bunch in April 2015 on the website spacing.ca. After a century and a half of continuous service, the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse was finally going to be decommissioned. To honor the old building's new life as a historical monument, a new plaque was going to be erected. The Ontario Archaeological and Historical Sites Advisory Board decided to include the ghost story as part of the official story of the building. It was the final sentence on the new plaque. The mysterious disappearance of its first keeper, J.P. Rattlemuller, in 1815 and the subsequent discovery nearby of part of a human skeleton enhanced its reputation as a haunted building. That line sparked a heated battle. The advisory board might like it, but the Metro Toronto Parks Committee disagreed. The councillors on the committee were appalled by the idea that such fantastical nonsense was going to be officially recognized. They made the argument that it would scare people away from visiting. But the advisory board refused to back down. But the advisory board refused to back down. The plaque went up anyway, and the story of John Paul's ghost was preserved. Today, you can still find it there on the side of the lighthouse giving the people of Toronto a colorful connection to one of the most interesting, but most easily forgotten, landmarks. Today, the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse is the oldest lighthouse anywhere on the Great Lakes. Some people consider it to be the oldest in all of Canada. The only older lighthouse is in Nova Scotia, but it's been repaired and renovated so many times that even Lighthouse Digest suggests that it might not really count anymore. So if you find yourself walking riding, or sailing past the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse, don't forget to look up to see if John Paul Radenmuller is looking back down at you. We would like to thank you for joining us for this special October spooky season episode of True North True Crime. We will be back with another ghostly tale before the end of the month. Don't forget to join us over on Patreon or say hi on Instagram. And if you have a case for us to cover send us an email at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. As usual, we thank you for listening to and supporting the podcast. In November, we will be covering some very important cases, so stay tuned. We're working on them as we speak. We hope you had as much fun listening to this episode as we did making it. Until next time, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.